This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at CosmicPotato.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. It's good to be back. We're doing our classic series tonight. Uh, we haven't done an episode of one of these in a while, so we're digging back into the IMDb list of the 100 greatest uh, films of all time. I want to thank our guests Troy Wood and Christopher DeFilippis for joining us on this, and uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. Had a couple of things I wanted to announce here at the beginning of the show. First of all, you really want to listen to our next two episodes because it's something that we've actually been working on for a year. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Kevin Smith's original script of Superman Lives. He wrote a draft of a Superman story that was the story of how Superman fights Doomsday, gets killed, comes back to life, all of that. It was supposed to be directed by Tim Burton. It was supposed to star Nicolas Cage as Superman. And it never happened. It never got made. And actually, when when Tim Burton took over, he kind of had it rewritten. So this, this script probably wouldn't have actually been the script that they used. But it is available online. And we got together and read the script as like an audio drama. And it was a lot of fun. We actually recorded half of it about a year ago. And then things happened because we had guests on the on the show. We had uh, Scott Madison joined us. Rick's wife, Emily, joined us. Virginia's boyfriend, Shane, joined us. And uh, after we did that first part, it became very hard for all of us to be available again at the same time. So it took a solid year to be able to line the stars up perfectly for everybody to get together. So... Our next episode after this one, which will be in two weeks, you'll hear part one, which was uh, recorded a year ago. Two weeks after that, you'll hear part two, which we just recorded last week. So I'm looking forward to bringing that to you. Uh, It's been a long time coming. Another thing that I wanted to announce is uh, if any of you guys like to write, uh, if you've ever thought about writing a blog, I am opening up CosmicPotato.com to hosting blogs about pop culture. So if you like writing about, uh, writing film reviews, if you like writing about one specific TV series, uh, what have you. If you've ever thought that you'd like to be part of the Cosmic Potato family, but you're not really interested in being on a podcast, this might be the avenue for you. We'd really like to publish some content on the website in print form. Right now, the only blog that's on there is mine. Uh, so if, if you have ever wanted to blog, if you have a knack for writing or a joy of writing, and you think that you could do it fairly consistently, I mean, you don't have to come out with a blog every day, but if you think you could do it weekly or bi-weekly or even monthly, send me an email at mail at cosmicpotato.com. Uh, just put in the subject line, blog. And I will, uh, I'll take a look. I'll have you send me some writing samples. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if it's, a, if the, it's the right fit and, uh, we'll set you up. You know, we'll, we'll set you up with a blog on the website. So go ahead and, and do that now. I'd love to hear from you. And that's pretty much all I've got. So I'm going to go ahead and stop talking. I'm going to turn on the theme music and I'm going to get the show started. Talk to you later. We interrupt this program to annoy you and make things generally irritating. (laughs) 
Welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. We've got you covered with everything from Marvel to Star Wars. I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to take this time to explain my evil plan. Classic films, trivia games, and beyond. Come on to the coast and get together, have a few laughs. Now, on with the show. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Cosmic Potato, the super fan talk podcast. My name is Sean Ray, and we're going to dive directly into the show tonight since we have so much to cover. First of all, sitting across the virtual table from me is someone that's 10 times more charming than that Arnold on Green Acres, John Irons. (laughs) How's it going, sir? Are you implying... Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us from the Quantum Leap Podcast, we have Mr. Christopher DeFilippis. How's it going, sir? Well, you mentioned to the host of the Mayberry Files that you think that Green Acres is a superior show, and all of a sudden, Green Acres gets, I don't know, dissed. <laughs> Green Acres is superior to me. That is to laugh. <laughs> and from, Unlike the Andy Griffith show. From the World War G podcast that can be heard right here on this network, we have Troy Wood. How's it going, sir? Well, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> I was going to use that line. Uh, yeah, I thought somebody would. Yeah, Long-time listeners will remember that uh, we started a series last year. It may have been 2017 that we actually started this, where uh, Troy and I were going to watch every film on the IMDb ultimate list of the 100 greatest films of all time. We haven't done an installment in a while. So we're going to get back to it tonight, and uh, we're going to be talking about, on the list, number 85, Pulp Fiction, number 83, The Graduate, number 82, Network. And yes, we skipped number 84, because that's uh, American Graffiti, and we're going to do that as a as a crossover with another show at a, at a later date. Um, so, Pulp Fiction. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Come on, let's get in character. I'm so interested in big man's life. Well, he's going out of town of Florida and he asked me if I... Take care of the while he's gone. Take care? No, man. Just make sure it's a good time. Make sure she don't get lonely. Girl. You see, this is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. I love you so much, can't count on Whether or not you can maintain loyalty. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts. It never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, you play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns for this kind of deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in the garage. Take me to it. Oh, 
Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Rings, Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Look at something for me. Ain't my friend looking. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. Starring John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Ving Rames, Uma Thurman, Christopher Walken, directed by Quentin Tarantino. The lives of two, okay, this is the IMDb description. See how close they actually get to, uh, describing this film. The lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. Uh, yeah, basically. I'm not sure how much redemption, there was a little bit of redemption, but, not not every character was redeemed in well, this no. film. But um this is the second film by Tarantino. Have you guys ever seen Reservoir Dogs? That was his first film. Yes. Yeah. I saw it after I saw Pulp Fiction. Yeah. This was almost a sequel to Reservoir Dogs because Michael Madsen was supposed to play the character that uh Travolta plays in this film. And he would have been playing uh I think what was what was his name in Reservoir Dogs? It was something Vega. His, uh, but this is, uh, Travolta is Vincent Vega. And in Reservoir yeah. Dogs, Michael Madsen played something Vega. Can't remember his first name. Um, but they're supposedly now Tarantino says they're brothers, but originally it was supposed to be the same character. So this would have been like a sequel. Is Michael Madsen the same character in, um, Kill Bill? I don't think so. I don't well, think he so. should be. Yeah, yeah. He could be the same line is. through the entire Tarantino <laughs> cinematic universe. Why not? So, all right. So, um, just so the listeners don't have to hear me drone on and on and on, I'll let somebody else start out, uh, kind of give an overall view of, uh, how you felt about this film. John, how about you to start? I was hoping you wouldn't do that. Okay. Well, Chris, um, how about you to start? <laughs> <laughs> no, John, John's in the barrel. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, well, I'm, I'm saying that because, uh, uh, I completely forgot that we were doing this until, um, I started getting messages this morning. <laughs> are we still, are we still, are we still on for tonight? It's like, maybe, yes. <laughs> what are, what are we, what are we supposed to have watched? So I have seen Pulp Fiction many times and, um, I've seen The Graduate probably a couple of times and I haven't, I think I've seen part of Network, so... I'm going to bow out of that conversation, but um, Pulp Fiction is, I was going to say it's the gold standard, but I'm not really sure of the gold standard of what it, I mean, it is, <laughs> but you know what? I, I think um, many, many episodes ago, we did um, perfect movies, mm-hmm. so, like perfect films. And, we didn't, we, you know, everyone set their own criteria for what perfect means. And for me, uh, the criteria that I use was perfect film is a film that 
completely conveys what the director um, or whoever the writer was trying, in this case, obviously the same person was trying to convey, like, you know, like a Picasso isn't a perfect portrait, but it is a perfect portrait as a Picasso. And Hmm. Pulp Fiction is that Pulp Fiction completely embraces the intelligence and the chaos and the grotesque and the ludicrous and the profane. (laughs) Um, And it shows that they can all be beautiful. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's a good movie. I enjoyed it. (laughs) I was okay. So I was 16 when this film came out because it came out in 94 and uh, 90, 93, 94, and um, ninety four. I was not even supposed. I was not even supposed to be able to buy a ticket. I was. <laughs> I wasn't old enough to get in, but I got in. And um, I think this movie gets a lot of flack because I think most of the people that say that they don't like this film just don't like Tarantino films in general. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and you watch the the original trailer that came out for this movie. They made it look a lot more like a gangster action movie. That there was a lot more action in the trailer than what you actually see in the movie. The movie is much more character driven and dialogue based. Tarantino is very good at writing dialogue. He's not so much good at delivering dialogue. I'll talk about his performance. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, this movie is in my top 10. It's a, it's, this is a seminal film for me. When I was a kid, I really liked watching movies. I still like watching movies. But this was you the first, say. this was the first time that I watched a movie <laughs> and I realized that watching a film can be more than just the stories that I had grown up watching. Just the, just simple movies. This was a little more in depth. I'm not saying that Tarantino was the first person to ever make a movie that didn't chronolo- chronicolog- chronologically, chronologically follow a, a set pattern and, um, and go in a linear fashion, you know, it was kind of, everything was out of sequence. He wasn't the first person to do that, but it was the first time that I had ever seen that, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it really made me go back and, and it, I, I went and watched Reservoir Dogs after this and I started watching some other things. I would see Tarantino in interviews and he would talk about movies that he liked, you know, and I go back and watch some of those and some of those are kind of strange, <laughs> but, um, for a director that I've never heard of before, this movie really had a top top tier cast. I mean, these were actors that were not only are they famous now, they were famous at the time. Everybody knew who Samuel L. Jackson was. He wasn't as big then as he is now. And this movie had a lot to do with that. This kind of put John Travolta back on the map because he had kind of yep. He kind of disappeared, you know. It he definitely was, did. Yeah. He was doing "Look Who's Talking" movies. That's about it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then and then a lot of the people that were in this movie have done many Tarantino movies since then. Like Tim Roth shows up in Tarantino movies a lot. Uma Thurman did a couple more movies with him. Samuel Jackson has been in almost all of his movies, you know. So um, it's it's been called out for being violent and dealing with things like murder and drug OD and stuff like that, but. You know, it's they do it in a in a comedic way, and it's not. I mean, it's not for kids, so don't let kids. Well, watch it's it. <laughs> it's true to the pulp to the 
source material. It's yeah. called pulp fiction. Like that's what those things were. That's what those little magazines were. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, this is one of my favorite. If I had to make a list of my top 10 favorite movies, this would be in that list. I like all of Tarantino's movies, but some of them I like more than others. This is probably my favorite Tarantino movie. So Ooh. Troy, what about you? Um, <clears throat> well, I have to say that this is the first time that I've seen Pulp Fiction all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces here and there. This is the first time I've watched it all the way through. And you 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 can see that he's – this is his second film. And you can see in his subsequent films that in this one he's planning – the seeds of, you know, what you're talking about, the Quentin Tarantino universe. He has all his usual tropes that he uses in all of his films. Um, and watching it, I could also tell that he's drawing from, as you were saying, films he likes. Uh, you know, gangster films and western films and, you know, the, the pulp comic books and, and that sort of thing. Um, and and watching it now, I, I, I think this was the perfect time for me to watch it because if I were to watch it years ago, I don't think I would have appreciated it. Now I can appreciate, you know, the choices that he made as far as, you know, the the, the dialogue and and the shots that he chose as far as cinematography goes, and it's an extremely well-crafted film. I think that's the best thing I could say about it. It's so well put together, um, which is ironic because the story isn't linear, but it's so well-crafted and so well put together. And the, the roles that these people are in, they fit them perfectly. And it's, I, I would totally agree that it is a, a near, um, a near perfect film i mean yes it's it's violent they're saying the n-word all over the place um but it has something that's trying to say and it tells it perfectly i feel Hmm. yeah i agree with that and if you watch a lot of uh if you watch tarantino's other films which i guess technically he's made nine films that he has been the actual director of and um he goes back to Spaghetti Westerns a lot. He goes back to gangster films. You see some Kung Fu stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially if you watch the Kill Bill series, he does all of that in, in one film. <laughs> or two parts of yes. one film, you know. So, um, uh, Chris, what about you? Well, I don't want to be contrarian, but just, <laughs> I, I will say this. I'm, I'm largely a Tarantino fan. I enjoy his films. And Sean, you're right. When, this film first came out in, in 91. Um, I think I, I was like 21, 22. And it really was a game changer. I mean, I had never seen anything quite like it. And um, it sort of shifted the paradigm of filmmaking. There were a lot of uh, knockoffs that came out in this Pulp Fiction style afterward. And Tarantino sort of helped break some ground. It's funny you were reading the one-sentence or two-sentence IMDb pitch. I'm wondering how he got this thing made. Because you usually have what they call the elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. And how do you describe this movie succinctly in a way that will make someone want to buy it? And 
with all of the names that were in it, I wonder if it um, didn't become something of like um, like like sort of a prestige project that a lot of people in Hollywood decided they wanted to be in. Because like you said, you have like all the names. You have Bruce Willis, you have Samuel Jackson, you have um, uh, Uma Thurman. I know that she wasn't as well known then. You have Vinnie Barbarino. You have just like a lot of people. <laughs> but I, I say Vinnie Barbarino because – in watching this again last night for the first time since I saw it that one time, as great as I thought it was the first time I saw it, I never really went back to it. And in watching it again last night, um, a lot of things that didn't annoy me the first time really annoyed me this time. Number one, I thought it was a little too long and a, li- a little too self-indulgent, but that's Tarantino. Yeah, well, um, it definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, they killed Bill. I, I couldn't get through both of them because it was just um, I was done. But I liked Hateful Eight, you know, and a lot of his other stuff appeals to me. Reservoir Dogs is one of my all time favorite films. Um, but last night when I was watching this again, it was like we're writing and it just it, it smacked of someone trying too hard to craft what they thought would be the perfect screenplay. And a lot of the dialogue that I found so engaging um, at first just seemed to me like random facts that Tarantino thought would be interesting and then throws it as a conversation between two characters because he doesn't really have much character work. He just needs to get to the action and he needs to engage you in a uh, like a superficial way until they get to the gunplay. And they have some of that in Reservoir Dogs when they're talking about how waitresses, waitressing is like the only profession that a single woman or a single mother can count on to make rent and everything. And then they, they kind of went away from that. This movie was like all of that. That's all of the conversations in this movie. And I've just found it after a while, it just got annoying because I wanted like maybe a little more character work, but he was too busy being hip. So... That that's what what stood out to me. I don't know if it's if it's a change in me or if, or if we've just moved beyond sort of that that paradigm, because another thing that that I noticed that I didn't notice before is like this is like a nostalgia fest. You have um, the 50s. Dino, what was it? Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That was like the most, you know, blatant nod to nostalgia, but all of like the hip surf music. And um, interspersed with a lot of 50s music. And Eric Stoltz's character is the drug dealer. And he's sitting eating uh, a bowl of what looked like, I guess, like Frankenberry or Boo I don't know what they're called. Fruit something. Yeah, But yeah. a lot of stuff was strategically placed to say, hey, look at that. And I just found it a little annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that being said, I mean, it was still engaging. Um the whole Bruce Willis uh, boxer storyline was good until you get um, the the weird detour into the basement. And at that point, I looked at the at the scroll on the Netflix and I said, oh, my God, there's still 45 minutes left in this movie. I, I didn't remember. Because I haven't even got to the third <laughs> act yet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's just yeah. like, how is this not over yet? And. That to me is is sort of a key indicator that I'm seeing more of what I don't like about the movie instead of what made me love, love, love the movie the first time I saw it. So I never go as far as to say it's a bad movie. It's a really good, intriguing, well-made movie like you guys all said. But it just smacks of film school pretension and hipster nonsense in <laughs> so many ways. <laughs> so. 
Well, I will say, okay, I, I mentioned a minute ago Tarantino's performance. This movie would have probably been perfect if Tarantino had not been in it. Um, Tarantino is a good writer. He's a brilliant, John's making faces. Uh, is, <laughs> he's a brilliant filmmaker. I'm waiting my turn. But he, he's a terrible actor. The, the scenes that he's in are very uncomfortable to watch. You, can, you, you need to make some phone calls. You need to call some people. Well, then do it, you know. And, and, and somebody also needs to remind Tarantino that he is a white man because he is throwing the N word around a lot. And it, it makes me cringe every time I see that, the, that part of the movie that he's just throwing it around that much. I think he is well aware. Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, he's sometimes aware. until you see him in an interview and he's sitting there watching a, wearing a kangaroo hat with it turned around backwards. I'm like, dude, come on. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that that also just smacks of, of sort of being hip at the time was sort of talking street lingo. And I think it was, um, sort of before, the uh the controversy and uh, not that there wasn't always controversy but i think that it's become a lot more taboo to use that kind of language than it was back then i think that's true but i don't think that's i don't know that that would make any difference to him like it that's the I don't necessarily feel like any language should be off limits. It's all about context. And given the people that, given the characters that these people are, they would talk like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and given the hyper reality that this is, I didn't have a problem with Tarantino's acting because he is <laughs> a caricature. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't like, you know, put him in a serious film then yeah but in here he fits just because he's he's a this crackpot oddball character like every other character in the movie mm. um so I, I i didn't have a problem with it at all so it, it does make you wonder then if if tarantino the scene that he was in if he was doing that stuff acting that way on purpose or not oh no he's never I been think, he's never I been think, able to act He's never been able yeah. to act. Well, I, I think <laughs> that's true. Have you seen From Dust Till Dawn? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he. I mean, yes. I, like I, I, I don't. I don't think the question applies because, <laughs> because I think uh, he wrote a scene that he could act in, and then he did the acting that he always does. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. So that's I mean, true. I, I was thinking. I was, I was wondering when you were taught when you. Um, Chris, you mentioned that it, it kind of shifted the paradigm. Um, and you're right. Like, it, it was one of the, if not the film that really kind of heralded in the whole indie film mm-hmm. um, title wave, um, where, you know, you didn't necessarily have to come from a big studio to be a big hit. And I was just wondering how many of the, because I think, was that Miramax? Yeah, Miramax. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, you were asking like, how did the film get made? Like, well, it was it was an independent film, and like you know, uh, the people that I used to work at a video store, right? And that was always to me like an indication of a really good movie. If it was a movie that you never heard of, but you've heard of all the actors in it, that means that it's a good project because the actors want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think this was probably that. And I was, I know I'm bouncing around, but I was, I was just wondering 
how many of the films on the top 100 list are independent films as opposed to big studio films. No, I have not done that. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> but I, I, but I, I will say what do you that, mean you to look that up, John? I will That's say that just... one of the reasons that I think that the film got made is because n- number one, it was there. It was the early to mid nineties. Miramax was looking for something different. They were looking to do something different than what everybody else was doing. Number two, uh, Reservoir Dogs was not a huge hit when it came out, but it had grown a cult following mm-hmm. in the years after it came out. So. By the time they made this, a lot more people knew who uh, Quentin Tarantino was, and more big name actors wanted to be attached to this project. So, gotcha. And it's also, you know, just it's funny now to think that Miramax used to be like the scrappy upstart. Yeah, <laughs> and it's become such a mainstream institution. I don't know if it's still since all of the the scandals, if it's still an entity. Quentin in Tarantino, uh, he separated himself from Miramax after. Uh, I forget which film it was. I want to say it was after Kill Bill. No, it was probably it was it was sooner than that. It was after the scandals and everything broke. He uh, he kind of separated himself from the Weinstein's mm-hmm. after that, you know. So uh, he doesn't do anything with Miramax anymore. Oh, and one thing that really annoyed me in this film is there was a blatant ripoff of one of the greatest films of all time, Repo Man. In the sense that you never got to see what was in the stupid briefcase, and it was just glowing when they opened it. I was just like, are you going to at least nod to Repo Man? Would, no, you're just going to use it. I put in my notes that that's one of the things that I liked about this film. I've got like four or five things that I wrote down I like about this film. I like that we never see what's in the briefcase. Yeah. I think in the script it was supposed to be like some jewels or something like that, but then they made a decision on set that we're just not ever going to see what's in the briefcase. I like the way that Marcellus Wallace's face is not, not seen until the third act. Um, <laughs> and and watching it now, I, every time I see him, I want to say we have the meats, you know, because <laughs> he's the guy from the Arby's commercial, you know. Um, there, there's always been a fan theory that Marcellus Wallace has a Band-Aid on the back of his neck, so there's always been a fan theory that um, some somebody pulled Marcellus Wallace's soul out of the back of his neck, and that's what's in the briefcase, you know. So. Uh, yeah, I've 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 heard that theory too, but I think knowing uh, seeing a lot of Tarantino's films, I think it was just a way to just have something else it's just to McGuffin. look at yeah. on screen. Right. Yeah, yeah, like with the bandaid on the back of the head. You know, the, there was a a lot of his dialogue. Ving Rhames' dialogue um, was him not seen, so it was just mm-hmm. a way to kind of focus in on something. That's that's always what I felt. Yeah. But it's also a cheap trick of putting sort of visual MacGuffins in place of substance. Right. And that's, again, one of the things that really sort of stood out to me which would have which watching this film. would have gone along with the, the, the cheap dime store Pulp Fiction novels that, that this is kind of based on. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I I wouldn't say cheap trick is wrong because I I I mean I don't disagree necessarily that it is kind of a shortcut, but I would say that it, it, an equally valid interpretation is it, a conscious choice to leave it open, you know, so that, mm-hmm. so that what's in the briefcase is something good, it, it whatever that something good is to you because everyone recognizes it instantly. Yeah. Which is why I don't think, which is why I don't agree with the fan theory that it's, you know, a soul. Cause it, you know, I've unless, never heard that. Unless, I thought it was awesome. 
Unless we're in some universe that, you know, everyone knows what a soul looks like, which should be the case. <laughs> also, a note that I made is that $5 is not that much for a milkshake anymore. Yeah. Um, no. In my mind, no. it was an $11 milkshake. I don't know how. how I guess inflation. <laughs> I wrote down some, uh, just some stuff that happened behind the scenes that I, I'll, I'll run through these quick, but, um, the shot of Vincent Vega, uh, pulling the syringe or pushing, putting the syringe into Mia's chest. They actually filmed that in reverse. So when he's coming down, they actually filmed it with him coming out. And if you notice the last shot, the little dot that he drew on her chest is gone, you know, so there's a lot of inconsistencies in shots, uh, and things like that in this film. And if you watch Quentin Tarantino films a lot, you know, Tarantino doesn't care about that stuff. If there's an inconsistency between something he shot over here and something he shot over there and he puts them together, he doesn't care if it really matches up. I mean, the, the scene where the guy comes out of the bathroom and she, and fires the, the gun at, at, at Vince and uh, Jules, the bullet holes were already in the, ho- in the wall behind them. Well, yeah. I mean, just they replay the scene at the beginning and at the end of the movie and the dialogue changes. Like, it's not, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not subtle yeah. with the... He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't care about it. Go back and watch, Jan- go back and watch Django Unchained. And the entire scene with the dynamite and everything, dynamite wasn't even in the United States, had not even been invented when that, when that movie takes place. It was, it's not even invented for like another four or five years after that. So also, um, Tarantino doesn't care about that. So Hitler wasn't murdered. Yeah. Hitler wasn't murdered. Like, like, really? Like, what's, what's the point? Like, who cares? He doesn't care. The movie, like, it's, it's the story he's telling. So. Um, the movie, yeah. on, the movie cost only eight million dollars to make. Uh, wow. five five million of that went to the actors. It made two hundred million dollars in theaters. Um, wow. Uma Thurman originally turned down the role of Mia Wallace. Uh, Quentin Tarantino wanted her to be Mia so bad that he read heard the script over the phone and convinced her to take the role. And kids, if you listen to Fallout Boy. This is Uma Thurman. I, I had a I had a conversation with my daughter a few years ago when that song was big, and uh, it the song was on. I think the video was on TV or something, and I, I was doing something, and she was watching it, and she said, "Dad, what's an Uma Thurman?" And I said, wow. "I said she's an actress." And I said, "Well, why are they talking about dance like Uma Thurman?" I said, "Well, she was in a movie where she had like a really famous uh, dance scene with uh, John Travolta, and you know, um." <laughs> yeah, then uh, she was in the room when I was watching when I was watching this movie the other day, and she and I showed her that scene. That's the scene that they were talking about. And she said she can't dance. <laughs> uh, I give Tarantino props though because John Travolta got famous after being a sweat hog for Saturday Night Fever and yeah. been you know I guess staying alive. So the guy can dance. So if you got John Travolta in your movie. At least have him dance. Yeah, I think he, I think I've heard Tarantino basically say that he's like, <laughs> I got I got uh, I got John Travolta. I'm not going to have him dance. Well, there's think, a there that, was a thing like, in the quote. '90s that if John Travolta, every movie that he did had he had to have a dance scene. I mean, the movie Michael where he played the angel, he had a dance scene in that. You know, every movie that he came out with for a few years had some kind of a dance scene. So I've heard uh, an interview with Tarantino that he basically choreographed that whole thing um that's why it's kind of weird because he had a particular vision in mind how he wanted this dancing to look yeah yeah. um and yeah and so like i think he pulled uh at the at the very beginning when she starts to dance um she has her hands a certain way and i think he he took that from 
Robin Hood, the animated movie from Disney, <laughs> like Maid Marian was dancing like that. Yeah, and he he wanted her to dance like Maid Marian. It was it, it, he's weird. I yeah. mean, is that why all... that why they were doing the Batusi? Yeah, they right. did do the Batusi. <laughs> yes. Hold and hold then. Yeah. Um, the F word is said two hundred and sixty five times in this movie. So the, the in the in the diner scene towards the end of the movie when Jewel he has uh, Jules has a. Uh, uh, Pumpkin pulled the wallet out of the bag, and it's got bad mf written on it and everything. He said, which wallet is yours? It's the one that says bad mf you know? <laughs> they didn't make that wallet for the movie. That was Quentin Tarantino's wallet. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> he was a big he was a big fan of Shaft, so he had that wallet made because he was a fan of Shaft, which incidentally, Samuel L. Jackson went on to play Shaft a couple of years later. Um. The quote that Jules uh, uses from the Bible is supposed to be from Ezekiel twenty five seventeen in the Old Testament. Actually, only the second half of what he says is actually in the Bible. They made up the whole first part. Uh, in Captain America Winter Soldier, when Nick Fury uh, stands by the headstone uh, at his grave, the marker says the path of the righteous man, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. Um, this is, there there is one that I wanted to bring up because I didn't realize it originally when i first saw this movie but you know in when they're in the apartment when they're in brett's apartment uh the second time not the first time when when we see that scene again towards the end and the dude that's in the bathroom that looks like jerry seinfeld comes running out you know and, and shoots the gun at him okay so that guy the guy that looks like jerry seinfeld was robert arquette so he was the brother of patricia not patricia arquette but rosanna arquette who was who was in the uh, the heroin overdose scene? Played Eric Stoltz's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Arquette later in life transitioned and became Alexis Arquette. So if you if you ever seen Alexis Arquette, that's who that was before she transitioned. Hmm. And she she passed Is away. She, a few, she passed away a few oh. years ago. Yeah, but uh, I thought that was interesting because I didn't re- I knew who Alexis <laughs> Arquette was because I remembered when she died. You know that they made a big deal of you know the steps that she had made towards uh transgendered people being accepted and stuff like that. But I didn't realize that was her, you know? So, and like I said, continuity errors, IMDb probably has 50 of them listed, but like Tarantino doesn't care. <laughs> doesn't oh. care about well, it's that. such a fren- frenetic movie that you're not really going to focus on that because yeah. it moves so quickly in a lot of places, even though I said, Oh my God, we still have 45 minutes to go. It was, it was sort of, it still is like a very fast paced film. Yeah. I, it, it felt like it moved quick, quickly to me, uh, quicker than I remember. Cause it's probably, I've probably seen this movie 20 times, but it's probably been five years since the last time I saw it before this. So yeah. And yeah, I remember it. It seemed like it was going quicker this time than it did before, but I just, I guess I just know all the steps. I know what's coming up and it just, it just passes. But there is a, uh, there's a scene where, uh, that got cut where Mia is talking to Vince and, um, you know, when they pull up to Jack Rabbit Slims, she says something about this place is great for an Elvis man or whatever. Well, the scene that got cut explains what in the crap she was talking about right there because <laughs> she, w- she had a whole conversation about everybody is either a Beatles fan or an Elvis fan. And uh mm-hmm. Beatles fans 
can like Elvis and Elvis fans can like the Beatles, but at the end of the day, you have to, you're, you're going to pick one over the other. And that determines the kind of person you are. And she says that Vince is an Elvis man, you know, so. And so years ago, Sean, when we first met, you asked me that question. You, you, are you a, are you a Beatles, you know, an Elvis guy, which I thought was a weird question. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was it was a cutscene from that movie. It was a conversation now. starter that I used to use a lot. Yes. I still use it. I still use it sometimes because it's. I mean, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Everybody picks the Beatles or Elvis, one over the other, at the end of the day. You know, that's an easy choice. Yeah, <laughs> it is for me. We mean it's not true. Yeah, you can like them both, but you're. But at the end of the day, you'd rather hear one than the other. My wife's arguing with me. I'm doing a podcast. Okay. Uh, yeah, that means she picks Elvis. So out of <laughs> so out of uh, out of four briefcases, uh, I'd give it I, okay. Out of I give it four briefcases out of five. I would give it five. I think that a, a few of the things don't quite hold up. The scene that Quentin Tarantino is in, I think, brings it down a notch. <laughs> it would be it would be better if somebody else played that part. But other than that, I I, I really dig this movie. Troy, what about you? What do you rate it? Um, I'm I would give it a four. Uh, there are, like I said, there are some problems here and there, continuity and and all that stuff. But uh, overall, um, yeah, it's a it's a dang entertaining film, and it, no matter the context of it or or you know what it was trying to say or you know the the pretense of it, at the end of the day, all I'm looking for is an entertaining film, and that's exactly what I got. So I'd give it four. Okay, Chris, what about you? I'm going to jump right on that bandwagon. Uh, four briefcases out of five, um, especially even I even though I had problems with it this second viewing. Um, just putting it in the context of its time and realizing what a game changer it was, you can't take that away from it. And it's still an entertaining film. So, yeah, I'd recommend somebody watches it at least once. Definitely four briefcases out of five. Yeah. All right. John? Are we doing halves? You can. Sure. Yeah, you can do halves. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do four and a half. Okay. Like, I, <laughs> um, like I said, it, it 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 for all the reasons that you know everybody said, it was a game changer. It is clearly his vision and yes chris part of his vision is to you know a big f you to everybody <laughs> look how awesome i am yeah um yeah i, I, I give it four and a half out of five because it is um it exists in its own little universe so it is timeless in a way that a lot of films aren't you know 30 years from now it'll still hold up because it's not really tied to real life, so I got I got to say every time I've watched this movie, I don't know why, but I always forget that Christopher Walken is in this movie, <laughs> and, then, and then he shows up talking about this hunk of metal that he kept shoved up his ass. <laughs> and when he was talking to that little kid when they filmed that, he was actually sitting in front of a small child saying these lines, you know. But the kid was too young to really know what he was talking about, so. It's like just grab it, just grab it. When he stops talking, just grab the watch. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next movie, The Graduate, nineteen sixty-seven. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me, Mrs. Robinson? You're trying to seduce me. <laughs> hey, 
Ben Schuller. We're all very proud of you, Ben. What is it, Ben? I guess about my future. Do you find me undesirable? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. I think, I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends. I don't want to close my eyes. I might miss something. Maybe we could do something else together. Mrs. Robinson, would you like to go to a movie? The world is changing faster than you Robinson, Benjamin. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Mrs. Robinson. Hey, Ben. Elaine's coming down from Berkeley soon. I want you to call her up. But you won't ever take Elaine out, will you? I want you to promise me that. Benjamin, I thought I made myself perfectly clear about this. I have no intention of ever taking your precious daughter out again in our life, so don't get upset about it. You're the first person I could stand to be with. I just don't believe you would do that. Try me. That woman, that older woman that I told you about? Benjamin, will you just tell me what this is all about? Starring Anne Bancroft, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Catherine Ross, and William Daniels, and directed by Mike Nichols. A disillusioned college student, or college graduate, finds himself torn between his older lover and her daughter. So, uh, Dustin Hoffman plays this kid, Ben Braddock, and he's just come home after he graduated from college, and the wife of his father's business partner makes him a proposition. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Um, he has an affair with her. He takes, uh, he takes Mrs. Robinson's daughter out because his parents kind of want him to and kind of force him to a little bit. And then he falls for her, which makes Mrs. Robinson very angry and very spiteful. So, um, Chris, what did you think of The Graduate? Wow. Um, I bring a lot of baggage to this film because I had to watch it in high school. Uh, as part of my senior year, I took a humanities class in place of English. And part of it was like film studies. And I remember telling my dad that we were watching The Graduate, and he hates this movie. Um, he said to him, it's all about wallowing in self-pity, and he just can't stand any of the scenes that Dustin Hoffman is in. And I can understand where he's coming from because this movie has a very specific point of view of someone who is post-college. And I think, you know, having these, these, these problems that are almost self-made in the sense that my dad, a blue collar guy who got up for work at three o'clock every morning, sees this person with privilege, just wallowing in, in doubt and with, you know, flailing with no direction Yeah. to him. That's you're making your own problems and just knock it off. Cut the bullshit. Yeah. So when I was watching the film, I had that mindset, but I've seen it a few times subsequently. And I, I understand completely what it's trying to do. So I think it's a well-made film. I don't know that it's entertaining, but I think it's a great study in um, just trying to find who you are, where you want to be, and not being confined to the pre predetermined role that you're supposed to play. I mean, the biggest line in this film is when the drunk comes up to, to Benjamin and says, you know, you know what the future is, it, it's plastics. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that symbolized like everything that he was so afraid of, this this pre-molded, disposable, cheap future that he was expected to follow. 
And that's why he rebelled against dating Elaine. That's why he, you know, he, he decided to have the affair with Mrs. Robinson because it was a way to break out of those, those preconceived roles. That's why she was doing it too. And so watching it on, on those levels, I find it very engaging. Um, it's, it's very much a movie of its time. It's got um, sort of that, that meandering kind of structure. It, it, it doesn't really um, give you anything narratively to say, look, this is what we're saying. This is what we're saying. It's all, it's all show, don't tell. So unless you sort of jive to what it's trying to show you and tell you, you're going to be like, well, this is just sort of a, a rambling, directionless film. And um, I've grown to appreciate it a lot more on subsequent viewings. First time I saw it, I thought it was eh, like, why, why is this such a seminal film? Now I kind of understand it. Do I enjoy it? Eh, men's a men. <laughs> you know? I thought that it was kind of... I'm not going to say I didn't like the movie because there was parts of it that I really did like. Um, it's kind of uneven for me because it's listed as a comedy. And there are some very funny things that happen in the movie. Dustin Hoffman has, if you really listen to what he says, he says some funny stuff. But the way he delivers his lines, you know, uh, it can kind of just get past you sometimes. But the laughs kind of seem out of place sometimes because of this Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack that's on this makes the movie seem very melancholy, even though he's he's doing and saying some some funny things. When they first go to the hotel and he's uh, going to the uh, the desk and trying to get the room and everything, that that scene made me laugh. When she's getting undressed and he's just standing there, he just reaches over and grabs her breast. <laughs> and she just keep, and she just keeps taking off her earrings and and mm-hmm. acts like it's not like it's not even happening. That scene made me laugh out loud. But then you've got the um, you've got the soundtrack going. You got these sad songs playing all the time and everything. It just uh, it doesn't really strike a balance. It's it's one way or the other, and never really gets in the middle. What about you, John? What do you think? As I said, I didn't I didn't rewatch it for this show. So last time I saw it, probably. 15 years ago. Um, I remember some of the scenes. Uh, I remember an overall feeling of basically like Chris said, like I, I, I can appreciate the filmmaking of it and I can appreciate that it's um, kind of a counterculture film, you know, compared to, um, you know, uh, movies that came before it. And it is definitely of its time. It, it, it is, you know, if you're going to boil down the 60s. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. So I get it and I appreciate it. And I like it for that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically I'm, I'm on the Chris bandwagon with this. Like, it's, it, is it an enjoyable film? It's a film you should probably watch. OK, but did you like it? Well, I can appreciate it. Okay, but did you... Was it entertaining? Um, I felt like there was an interesting story-ish. <laughs> Actually, I can't even say that last one. The story wasn't interesting. Um, the way they told it was kind of interesting. But the story in itself really wasn't interesting. It, it was like, you know... He's supposed to be a grown-up, and he doesn't know what to do with his life. Okay, and then what? Yeah. 
And then he gets on a bus. That's the and then, yeah. And then at the <laughs> end, at the end, he that, still doesn't know what to do with his life. Yeah. But that, but that's a big epiphany because they're both running away from the the predetermined future that had been set for both of them. Yes. Even though that they are sort of trapped in it because ultimately they did wind up together the way I'm sure their parents thought they would or should. It's just on their own terms, and that's and that's kind of the. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, they're on the bus and they they just sort of don't know. But at least there's there's doubt. At least there's an unknown element, and that's what I think is is supposed to be like the happy ending of the movie. It's the it's, it. He still doesn't know what the hell he's going to do, but at least he's doing it on his terms. I don't think I I agree with that, but I don't I I disagree with the term happy ending. I don't think they were trying for a happy ending. They were going for a real life ending. I, I felt like I felt like the ending it, that's not an ending. Yeah, all the way yeah. through this movie Ben is always doing things without thinking about what he's doing first. You know, he gets into an affair with Mrs. Robinson, he doesn't really think about it. He just does it because she offers it to him and he doesn't know to do anything else. So yeah, I'm going to do this. And then he decides I'm going to marry Elaine even though he had she is at that point she doesn't even like him anymore. You know, so he's like, yeah, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to go up to what is it berkeley i'm gonna to go to berkeley today and and, <laughs> and, she, and she's gonna fall she's gonna fall in love with me <laughs> and then at the end you know he wants elaine so he's gonna take her away from the man that she's gonna marry which she's doing the same thing too she doesn't right. really she went she, with him she's like, running away from things too because she's running away from him to go marry this guy and then she's running away from this guy to go with him and then at the end of the movie they're on the bus and he's done all these things without really thinking about it first and now it's sinking in crap now what do i do <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. so I, when I said happy ending, I didn't mean happy ending. I just thought maybe um, some kind of hope for a difference. And <laughs> that maybe signifies, you know, the, the the potential of happiness for him. Right. OK. Even yeah. if it's not with a link. Troy, what do you think yes. of the graduate? He's affecting his own agency for a change. Yeah. Yeah. Ag- thank you, John. Agency. That's the word I've been looking for. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I. Uh, not, um, mm. I <laughs> I hated this film. To be <laughs> I could not stand it. I was bored out of my mind. God, we're just following this mopey kid around as he goes from one thing to one thing, and it's just I was kept waiting for something interesting to happen, but nothing ever did. The most interesting thing in this film is I realize, oh, his dad is Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. <laughs> also the voice of Kit, the, Kit from, from Knight Rider. Yeah. yeah. Also Dr. Craig from San Elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was the most interesting thing to me. It was just, man, it was boring. Mind-numbingly boring. <sighs> and you talk about a continuity error. Um so his dad at the they're having a birthday party for him and they got him the scuba gear for his birthday. His dad's standing at the door and he keeps walking over to the door and Dustin Hoffman Ben is uh whispering to him f- through the door. I don't really want to do this. Don't make me do this. When he opens the door, he's all the way at the other side of the room completely encased in scuba gear. And it's like, how is he whispering to you through the door? But uh <laughs> <laughs> I got some uh behind the scenes things that happened uh that's in trivia too when dustin hoffman showed up at producer joseph levine's office for a casting interview levine mistook him for a window cleaner 
So Hoffman, <laughs> in character, cleaned a window. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that sounds like a Dustin Hoffman thing to do. It Although uh, Mrs. Robinson is supposed to be much older than Benjamin, and Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman were were only uh, six years apart in age. He yeah, looked. This would have. It, it would have been whoa. served better. If he didn't look like he was thirty five. Yeah. Yeah. He looked. He looked kind of boyish, and she was made up to look older than she was. Uh, also, Bancroft was only eight years older than Catherine Ross, who was playing her daughter, and uh, <laughs> William Daniels was only ten years older than than Dustin Hoffman, and he's playing <laughs> his father. Uh, Anne Bancroft said for many years after doing this movie, young men would tell her that she was the first woman they ever had sexual fantasies about. That's a strange thing to tell somebody. <laughs> that is weird. That would yeah. be a weird thing to hear somebody tell you. That was a different time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> there was a joke, John. <laughs> no, I'm like, oh, it's- not different at all. But, you know, <laughs> just when Elaine tracks down Ben in his gloomy room and he, and he causes her to scream, several other tenants gather behind the landlord in the doorway. One of them says, shall I get the cops? I'll get the cops. That's Richard Dreyfus in one of his earliest film roles. Oh. Um, Dustin Hoffman rehearsed the scene where he knocks on the glass at the church. Uh, he pounded heavily on the glass and the, the whole window would shake when he would do that. At, uh, the priest or pastor, uh, he threatened to kick out the entire film crew if he kept banging on the glass like that. So they told him to knock more softly. So he started doing this posture where he would hold his arms out like this and beat on the glass. And, uh, a lot of people want to say that he's trying to invoke a crucifixion stance or whatever, but actually he's trying not to break the glass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who was the, um, I'm sure you said it while I was um, while I was away. Who who directed this? Is this this was Mike Nichols. Director? Mike Nichols. Oh yeah, yeah. I've heard of him. Also, this this movie was based on a novel by Charles Webb. Webb also wrote a sequel to this forty years later because he was broke and he needed money. He was hoping that he could write another book and they would make a movie of that. Yeah, and uh, and he uh, the name of that book was called Homeschool, and the plot is that Ben and Elaine, ten years after uh, after the the original story, they're fighting to allow their sons to be homeschooled, and they need Mrs. Robinson's help. It sounds like the most boring book ever. Uh, there was a movie that came out in two thousand five called Rumor Has It, and it has uh, Kevin Costner and Shirley MacLaine and Jennifer Aniston. And Kevin Costner is supposed to be playing the guy that the novel was based on. He's supposed to be the Ben Braddock character from the novel, even though that's not his name. So mm. it's kind of a spiritual sequel to The Graduate. <coughs> so, Chris, you said you had some trivia? Well, the only trivia I have is to do with music because I'm a Simon and Garfunkel fan. And they use Sound of Silence as the theme for basically mrs robinson Mm -hmm. and it turns out that the only time you ever hear mrs robinson it's just like little refrains when benjamin's driving to the church and it's because they hadn't even written this song yet they only had the broad strokes of it and they hadn't gone to the studio to produce a final version of it so that's why um when the song is on it's just in very disjointed pieces it never actually plays in the movie yeah and it wasn't until after the movie uh came out that the song had been released so, but that's the only bit of trivia that I have about it. 
Which that whole scene is another example of Ben doing things without thinking and the fact that he's, he runs out of gas. You know, <laughs> you got a problem with Ben. This is, this is, this is supposed to be something very important to you and you run out of gas. But I did like the, the, the one version of the song where there's just, it's just do, 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 and it's just that for several minutes. You know, I like that. Okay. Um, so I give it, I don't even know what to rate it out of, so I just rate it out of stars. I, I rate it, uh, out three stars. Yeah, plastics. plastics. Okay. Yeah. Three plastics. Um, I, I enjoyed parts of it. I found parts of it funny. I just thought that I personally could not find the mood that they were trying to, uh, that they were going for. So. Okay. What about you, Troy? What, what do you think? <laughs> one. one. I'm giving it one because it, I knew exactly what they were trying to say. Within 10 minutes, I knew, okay, this is a disillusioned college kid trying to find himself. Great. Never seen that before. <laughs> it, uh, I, yeah, I, I watched it because, you know, obviously we had to do this and it's just another check mark <laughs> for the list, but I don't think I will ever see this movie again. Oh, I don't no. plan on ever watching it again either. No. <laughs> but, okay. Chris, what about you? I give it 10 stars. <laughs> Why would you say that? <laughs> no, I give it, I give it two and a half plastics. Um, again, I think especially taken in context of its time, it, it sort of brought a lot of taboo subjects up like, you know, affairs and, um, counterculture. And it wasn't sort of a happy Hollywood film. It was more made in that late sixties, seventies vein of filmmaking. It helped define that era of filmmaking. And I think it's a well-made film. I just don't find it very engaging. And I don't know how much of value it has to say to viewers today. I mean, witness Troy, who is significantly younger than I am, (laughs) <laughs> and he knew exactly what is he gets it i mean it's not like it's yeah. going over his head yeah. and <laughs> he, there's just no redeeming value in what he got so yeah i i say a solid middle of the road two and a half all right john you can copy and paste everything chris just said okay <laughs> <laughs> all right uh last movie on our list for the night network from 1976 and now, the distinguished television news commentator, Mr. Howard Beale. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like at this moment to announce that I will be retiring from this program in two weeks' time because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. I'm going to blow my brains out right on this program a week from today. What the hell's going on? Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... Six, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max, it's mine. I got a feeling I'm being made. You are. Got to warn you, I... I don't do anything on my first date. We'll see. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group. Well, Ahmed, I want to make a TV star out of you. Just like Archie Bunker. That's the number one show in television! We're number one! We're number one! 
There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and DuPont and Exxon. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? Why me? It was your own television, dummy. Ladies and gentlemen, the Network News Hour with Howard Beale. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. How many stations does this go out? You've got to get mad. You've got to say... I want you to get up right now. Go to your windows, stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Are they yelling in Atlanta, Herb? Are they yelling in Atlanta, Ted? Network by Patty Chayefsky. Directed by Sidney Lumet. Produced by Howard Gottfried. Television will never be the same. Starring Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch, Robert Duvall. And directed by Sidney... Is it Sidney Lumet? Lumet. Okay. Is it? I want to say Lumet. Is it Lumet? We have, it's spelled Lumet. We have robots Lumet. at our disposal. Let's see. <laughs> we have robots at our disposal. <laughs> Let's see what Google. Let's see what the Google machine says. It's you guys carry on. Sydney Lumet. Hey Google. Lumet. <laughs> I'll read the uh, IMDb okay, description. Google. A television network cynically exploits a deranged former anchor's ravings and revelations Here's about the results. news. Me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> about the, the news media. <laughs> For its own profit. So, okay, so this is a movie that I've heard of my entire life, but never watched until this. I've never actually sat down and seen it. I've heard the classic line, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I've, I've seen that parodied. I've, uh, seen, you know, when they do these, uh, documentaries, these are the greatest lines of all time that's always played and things like that. But I, I didn't, I had no context because I didn't know what, what, know what the movie was. I did not realize that William Holden was in this movie. He was a leading man in a lot of old black and white movies that I've seen. Yeah. You know. Um and he's also a name that that pops up uh uh from time to time in older TV shows like the Andy Griffith show, you know. So are we going to go are we going to go see that William Holden movie, you know. <laughs> that kind of stuff. I love uh, Lucy. He was in that. Yep. Yeah, I love Lucy. Yep. Um Faye Dun- Dunaway, that's another big name that I've seen in a few things before. Uh She's in Supergirl. That's true. Yeah, she was. (laughs) But that's that's pretty much all I knew about that. Other than I knew that it was a movie about TV news in the 70s. But what I found when I watched this movie is that what they were trying to say, I think, is relevant today as much as it was in the 70s when it came out. Maybe more. Um, So Howard Beale gets fired from his anchor job because he's not bringing in the ratings and then he's told that he's got two weeks left until he goes on. So he, he, uh, he goes on the air and he says, I'm going to kill myself on the air next Tuesday. And, uh, one thing that gets me is that, uh, for a minute, 
Nobody realized that he said that. They were like, wait, yeah. what, what did he say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, nobody's really paying attention to what he's saying. Uh, so they fire him immediately, but they let him go back on the air and say, say goodbye to the world or whatever. And he goes on this big tear where he gives the famous mad as hell speech and everything. And he tells people to go to the window and yell it out at the world, which they do. Okay. So this reminded me of something. Have you got, I'm sure you guys have read the book Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. I had to read yeah. that book in high school. So there's a scene in that book where somebody, you know, guy Montag, which is the fireman that everybody, they're looking for him because, you know, he's, he's the good guy, but he's their bad guy or whatever. And they are searching for him and they come on the TV and they say, everybody go to your door and point him out when he comes by or something, you know, so, and people do it. They just get up from the TV and they just walk to the door and they do it. And the one thing that we uh, talked about in my high school literature class, when we, when we read that book was that this is trying to show that the public had become zombies and that they just did whatever the TV told them to do, Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of reminded me when I saw this, it kind of reminded me of the same thing because this guy on TV just tells them, go to the window and yell this. And everybody just gets up and they open the window. And I mean, everybody's out there. Of course, it's 1976. There's only three stations on TV, so there's not much to watch. <laughs> That's pretty much true. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, um, that, uh, that ends my, my, my ramblings, I guess. What do you guys think of this movie? John, what about you? I'm going to jump in right now. I have nothing to contribute. Okay. <laughs> Troy, what about you? <laughs> well, um, I think like I've said in episodes past, I've never been a big fan of 70s cinema in general. Um, I just don't like the 70s decade. Um, I think it's gross. But I was I w- born of the 70s. <laughs> I was point molded is- by it. <laughs> So much, so much more discussion to be had on this. I, I literally <laughs> began when the seventies began. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I'm talking more media, film, and television. I don't like it. It's just, yeah, it's just gross to me. Anyway, um, but I will say this movie, I, I really found myself really enjoying it. I didn't think I would. Out of the three, I thought, oh, this will be just another one. You know, I just watch. Um, incidentally, it turned out to be the graduate I didn't like, but, um, this one, what I liked is it really shows how just whorish the TV business is. Uh, whereas some guy can lose his mind on television and they automatically fire him, but then he realizes, oh, he gets ratings. So they hire him back and then they, he loses, starts to lose ratings again, so they get him or, uh, killed. They assassinate the guy. It's just – it's an in, a weird, insane snapshot of the TV business that I wouldn't be surprised if it was actually fairly accurate at the time. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I found the most interesting is just how these people are just about – Ratings, you know, they didn't care about quality. They didn't care what was what was on, just as long as it was getting ratings. Yeah, as and long as people I th- were watching it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's and I found that really really interesting. Chris, what about you? 
Well, as someone who was in broadcast journalism for, you know, 20, 25 years, um, this movie really should have spoken to me and it did in every bad way possible. Um, I did not like this film at all. I had a hard time getting through it. It took me about three tries and I understand what it was like. It was like sort of trying to be a wickedly smart satire on the state of media and how the sort of the ideal of the journalist and sort of that, that news organization being subsumed by the entertainment part of television and the big corporations that care about nothing but money and ratings. And it's just this losing battle of attrition um, taken to this, this extreme, which is supposed to be both scary and funny and, what I didn't like about it was that it was another movie that seemed more about I am writing and there's a <laughs> lot of monologuing going on about the juxtaposition between the real world and how horrible and, um, you know, soul sucking TV is and how that's not reality. And But I can still feel, damn it. And I was trying to figure out why it was such a shaggy dog. Because it was either going to be like this wicked satire about this guy going crazy and everybody exploiting it. But then, you know, stopping you dead in the middle is the story of the news director who gets fired when he tries to have his best friend taken off the air because he's he's plainly crazy. Yet um, they want him there for ratings. and But he gets into an affair with Faye Dunaway's character, who is like the least realistic and just like I'm acting character <laughs> in, in the film. And... Um, I realized that they wanted that as a hard stop to juxtapose the, the the satire and try to give the film a message of, you know, there are real experiences to be had in the world. It's not all about going on TV, but it, it's it was just so clumsily handled. I thought I didn't think that the satire was particularly funny. I didn't think that the messages were particularly poignant. And at the end of the day, the film just didn't work for me. And it was saying, like you said, Sean, a lot of the stuff that's in this film is really part and parcel of how TV is made today, especially in the era of cable news. It's not news. It's entertainment. And it's run by corporations that don't care about anything but ratings. They don't care about facts. They don't care about truth. They care about getting eyes glued to the screen. And they'll say and do anything to make sure that they get the viewers. So it should be like almost prescient. You should watch this film and be blown away because we are now sort of living in this 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 parody that they try to to send up. For all that, it still doesn't engage me on any level. So I I'm, I thought that I was going to like this more than I did. And I remember seeing most of it years and years and years ago, but I didn't really remember much about it. And I found it a real chore to get through this time, even though it was ticking off like all of the correct boxes. It just didn't come together in any way. The ending really floored me because I was not expecting it. So what happens is that uh, the higher ups don't want to fire uh, Bill because his ratings are going down and They've turned him into this. It's it, it's not news. They're calling it news, but it's really just reality television. It's a it's a big show that they're doing where he comes out and does these big rants, and then he just collapses on the stage. And you know, and it's it's 
audience fanfare. But the audience is not liking what he's saying anymore, so the ratings are going down. But the higher-ups don't want to fire him. So the producers and everybody, they get together and they decide, well, you know what, we just got to kill him. And when, <laughs> and when they said that, I was like, we... When did you guys turn into murderers? Nobody, nobody had been killed yet, you know. Uh, so it reminded me of a of an actual story. Have you guys ever heard of the story of uh, Christine Chubbuck? I know, yes. Chris, you probably have. Okay, no, actually, I haven't. I don't you know haven't. What you're okay. About. Yeah. So in 1974, is two years before this film came out, there was a uh, news anchor in Florida named Christine Chubbuck. And she, I mean, she had some mental illness. She was going through a lot of depression and things, but she was trying to uh, build a career at a station that had a mantra of, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So one day she gets on the air and she says, uh, she looks at the camera and she is, and she says in keeping with, she, actually she, she, she reported four or five stories first and they were all, um, violence, gore, gun robbery, stabbing, that kind of stuff. And then she looks at the camera and she says, in keeping with Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest in blood and guts and in living color, you're going to see another first and attempted suicide. She pulls a gun out from underneath the counter, underneath the desk, and she shoots herself in the head Mm. on television. You know? And I remembered that story because they made a movie about it a few years ago. And, um... When I saw this, it reminded me of that. And then doing research on this movie, I found out that that story actually inspired the ending to this movie. You hmm. know, so I thought that was, that was interesting that, uh, that it, it reminded me of something that I had heard before. And then I found out that that's what actually what inspired this. So, uh, I don't know that TV executives regularly have their news anchors killed because their ratings are, are, are low or whatever. That I know that's satire. That's a, a, a probably a parody of what actually happens. But, but uh, like I said, the ending just floored me because it's, it just came out of nowhere because no one was yeah. talking murder. And then it was just like, you know what? We got to kill him. Got to do it. And all the other people are like, yep. You're right. Yeah, that's what we got to do. You yeah. don't have a recording going on here, do you? No. Okay. Well, how are we going to do it? <laughs> so. What What I also liked is after they did kill him, they kind of do this pan out shot of these four screens, and they're talking about his, you know, what had happened, the story, and it just starts to get kind of drowned out. Mm-hmm. Um. So it, they're basically just saying like, yeah, this this thing happened. Now he was a big, you know, this big star. Now he's just another news story, and it doesn't doesn't really matter. So there was something about this movie, and I, I think the reason I enjoyed it so much is there's something oddly comforting about the fact that even back in the '70s, and I think this film was made in '76, yeah, if 76. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> That even back then, uh, people were still worrying about the same type of crap that we're worrying about nowadays. You know, it, it's about trying to get people to watch your thing, and people mm-hmm. still do that. Instead of television, though, it's now moved to social media. You know, people are so consumed with getting likes that they'll do pretty much what is whatever they need to. Uh, or or anything to – they'll do anything to get people to them so that they can get those likes. They can get the views up. And and so for somehow it was oddly 
comforting to me because like, well, if they survived it, if, you know, if, 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 you know, we came out of the seventies. Okay. More or less. Um, <laughs> I think we'll, we'll get through this time as well. And so I don't know. I've, I found it oddly reassuring if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Some behind the scenes trivia. Um, director Sidney Lumet. Did we ever find out if it was Lumet or Lumet? I couldn't. I couldn't figure it out. We'll say Lumet. Okay. Thank you. And scream and screenwriter uh, Patty Shayevsky. Uh, they claimed that the film was not meant to be a satire, but a reflection of what was actually happening. Uh, and he openly admitted that he was furious to have to lose uh, best the Best Picture Academy Award to Rocky. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, which I mean, spoiler alert! I like Rocky better than this movie. But anyway, the only yeah, sure. the only music heard in this film comes from uh, commercials and television show themes. I didn't notice that until I read that. I wish that I had noticed it. It made me feel sm- smarter. According to <laughs> Sidney Lumet, the "Mad as Hell" speech was filmed in one and a half takes. Midway through the second take, Peter Fit- Finch abruptly stopped in exhaustion. Uh, Lumet was unaware that Finch had a failing heart at the time, but in any case, mm. he did not take a third take. Uh, what you see in the film, uh, the first half of what you hear him say came from the second take. The second half of what you hear him say came from the first take. Peter Finch died before the Academy Awards were, to, were took place where he was nominated for best actor. He won making him the first performer ever to receive a posthumous, uh, award at the Oscars. The second winner was fellow Australian Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight, 2008. Mm. Right. William Holden had some reservations about the love scene that he had with Faye Dunaway. So th- this was actually a scene that I it kind of made me laugh uh, because she can't shut up about her career yeah. on the on this date with William Holden. You know, they they go to dinner. He sits there and doesn't say anything during dinner. She just goes on and on about FBI investigations and ratings and this and that. They go back to the room. They have sex and she's still talking about her work. You know, I think she had sex in that scene. I don't know if it would qualify for him. I don't know if it qualified as sex at all. But yeah, in her excitement. In her excitement, she exclaims about her ratings, the ratings of her successful television show. At a climactic moment, she cries out, we're getting more publicity out of this than Watergate. <laughs> uh, so yeah. William Holden says, such things are not to my liking. He said, he believe, I believe that lovemaking is a private thing and I don't enjoy depictions of it on screen. He rationalized that uh, if nobody had been in bed on screen before, I might have hesitated but he went with it, understanding the scene, the scene was not meant to be pornographic. It was meant to disclose a character flaw. The mm-hmm. fact that Faye talks all the way through it and tells it tells more about her. It was uh, Patty. Patty is the uh, writer. It was his way of getting the dialogue out. Holden did allow, however, that he felt the scene was meant to be more amusing than it actually came off. Mm. As much as I want to give this movie a higher score for relevance... I did find big chunks of it to be boring. And maybe it's just because it's the, the, the tedious amount of behind the scenes of television in the seventies. Uh, maybe it might be that. I don't know because television doesn't really work the same way now as it does, as it did in the seventies. But, um, so I do recommend the movie for its message. I'll probably, I'll give it two and a half stars. 
two and a half, uh, I don't know, two, two and a half gunshots. <laughs> two and a half ratings points. How about yeah, that? Yeah, there you two go. And two and a half ratings points. Yeah, uh, yeah, two yeah. and a half share. What about um, you, Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm also at, uh, two and a half. Um, I, but I actually, and I'm giving it that because I'm kind of in the reverse. I enjoyed all the behind the scenes stuff. I enjoyed kind of seeing how the, the corporation ran and all the backdoor politics and, and that sort of thing. Um, that's the stuff I enjoyed when they actually, you know, when it came to, to Faye Dunaway, as I call her the poor man's Meryl Streep and, and William Holden, um, I, I really couldn't care less. That's, that's the part of the movie that dragged for me. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm giving it two and a half. I really like Robert Duvall at that, that point in his career. When when he was more more Tom Hagen than he was Lonesome Dove, you know. Yes, he, yes. He, before he turned into a cowboy, <laughs> before he turned into an old man. Yeah, yeah. I like, but I like the stuff that he made uh, in the in the younger days of his career. I, I like Robert Duvall now. I mean, I there's some westerns I like, and the westerns I do like, he's usually in. But um, but yeah, I, I, it's probably because The Godfather is one of my favorite movies, and. uh and I, I like Robert Duvall in that movie. So, and he had he had a little bit of that going on. Except he was more of the Godfather in this. You know, he was the one calling for people to be hit. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what about you? What you what do you rate it? I mean, um, I'm going to say one and a half share. I okay. I should have liked it more, but it it ultimately is just a failure of the film, in my opinion. And it's funny because you talk about putting things in context. I think the same year that this came out was when All the President's Men came out, when mm. it basically, you know, was touting the the positive value of hard-hitting investigative reporting and journalism and, you know, sort of that romanticizing the newsroom. And this took the complete opposite tack. And they were both very valid um, depictions of the business, especially as it was perceived at that time. Um, I've never seen all the president's men. I wonder if I would find that as boring as I found this because I have no love affair with journalism. It was just my job for a while. And, um, I don't, I don't romanticize it in any way. Um, this film sort of, you know, takes the, the wind out of its sails and shows you that it is just a business. So it does have some very valuable things to say, a lot of prescient things to say. It just doesn't say it in any way that's engaging or interesting. So again, one, one and a half. I think all the president's men is on this list. I think it is too. It probably yeah. is. We'll yeah. get to it eventually. Yeah. John, do you want to rate this movie? The gentleman from Maryland abstains. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, uh, that's pretty much going to do it for this uh, review. We're going to keep doing these though. We're not going to do them, uh, monthly as we were doing before because the show is coming out bi-weekly now instead of weekly. So we'll probably do do the IMDb uh best of shows like quarterly now, you know. So but we are going to keep doing it. We're going to keep moving through the list and uh we'll, we will uh we will let you know when the next one comes out. You just got to keep uh checking out our Facebook group and everything when we uh when we put new episodes up, you'll see them. If you want to follow along with us as we watch these, the next three movies that we're going to talk about uh, will be number 81 on the list, Nashville. 
I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, <laughs> number, number, number 80, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and number 79, The Green Mile. So, um, Troy, thank you for being here tonight. Yeah, no problem. You want to let, let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me um, right here on the Cosmic Potato Network on the World War G podcast, or you can go to my own website, worldwarg.podbean.com. I'm also the co-host of the Mayberry Files here on the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. All right, and Chris, where can people find you? I am a host of the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can find us at quantumleappodcast.com. Um, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those good places. And uh, just do a search in your favorite podcatcher, and the show should pop up. Uh, please listen. We're what doing was, great stuff over there. What was the last episode of the Andy Griffith Show that you watched? Uh, the first one. I still have to watch The Manhunt. Oh, okay. What would you yeah, think? Because I have I, I, the first one? Yeah. Um, now, oh, wow, you're going to make me, uh, <laughs> now I kind of know why every time the Andy Griffith show came on when I was a kid, I turned it off. Oh, God. Why I never made it past the <laughs> opening whistle. Now, I'm, listen, That's you cannot judge, you trial, trial by pilot, I can't, I can't judge by the pilot. Um, I'm going to watch the show with you guys and see if I can find an appreciation for it because it is a classic. It's just nothing I ever watched and ever thought I would. All right. So (laughs) we're doing good work. Sean and Troy. John, where can people find you, sir? Uh, Also on the Cosmic Potato Network, um, hosting Captain Game Show. Trivia, wordplay, improv, shenanigans. (laughs) All right. And if you want to know how to contact us, uh, just stay tuned announcer nate will let you know momentarily but uh be sure that you join us next time on cosmic potato the super fan talk podcast when you might hear john say cosmic potato the super fan talk podcast c is for cookie (laughs) it's good enough for me o is for obi-wan darth vader set him free (laughs) S is for Simpsons and all the laughs they bring. M is for Mordor and a problematic ring. I is for Inception, the dream within a dream. C is for Captain Picard and his facepalm meme. P. Oh my god. This is not gonna end. Huh? <laughs> P is for the photon. The star food makes explode. <laughs> o is for Lord Odin. And the future his eye showed. <laughs> T is for the TARDIS and the doctor that's inside. Alright, I'm out. A is for the alien. <laughs> Be sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can contact us by email at mail at cosmicpotato.com or send us a voicemail or text message to 205-642-8380. Help the show grow by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you for joining us for Cosmic Potato, the Super Fan Talk Podcast. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha
that made me. He really left. It's for the aliens. <laughs> He's not going to be able to finish it. <laughs> that made new fun and hide. <laughs> T is for Tetris, a game with lots of blocks. O is for Optimus, an Autobot that rocks. <laughs> T. Oh, wait a minute. You're, you're going to go through the whole subtitle. <laughs> I think I might be out too. Do we continue? <laughs> To be continued. <laughs> it's for Toonami. When I first saw Dragon Ball. Who hates? It's for Deathly Hallows. And Harry Potter, who found them all. Oh e is for Edward, <laughs> scissor hands, both left and right. John, I'm, ta- I'm taking five points away from the next time you play <laughs> Captain Game Show. Yes. <laughs> five points from Gryffindor. It's a super fan talk podcast. Because <sighs> we ain't got all night. <laughs> <laughs> five, point, five points from Gryffindor. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'm not in group of yeah, <laughs>